Thank you for joining us for the Cross Loganville podcast as we continue our way through the book of James. Um, so I'll be continuing in our series on the book of James. Uh, this is one of my favorite books of the Bible. I keep hearing that from people. It's like always in their top five. He lists a lot of situations that are very easy to picture um, and recallable. And uh, if I had to kind of describe or summarize this whole book in just a phrase or a sentence, it would be something along the lines of this. Let your faith grow deeper. Let your faith grow deeper. Let it go further, right? Not just behave better, but believe deeper, and the behavior consistent with faith will follow, right? And the way that we deepen faith is by prayer and obedience to Jesus. Uh, There was uh, a writer many hundred years ago who used to say, I obey so that I can understand. There's so much to understand with God uh, that can really only be discovered as we keep in step with him, as we depend on him for the ability to obey in the different moments that he calls us into, into the unique circumstances of our lives. Uh, Last week, Tim emphasized a really brilliant question. Uh, that not just summarizes this book, but so much of what we should be asking as students of Jesus all the time, and that is, what are you doing with what you know now? It's a great question, right? Um, I've heard it said that we are very loaded with content. We're loaded with knowledge these days. The amount of information flying around is crazy. It's like never before. Um, But wisdom is not so much there, right? The deepened knowledge. And he's calling us into that. And so that's how we become wise, is to become a doer of the word and not just a hearer, right, is what James says. So he'll give examples like that, not just being a hearer of the word, but also a doer. And oftentimes in a consumeristic society, we can have this feeling of, well, if it's not perfect, send it back, right? If the meal is undercooked, send it back, which is probably good. Um, but when it comes to faith, it's going to be half-baked for a while, right? It needs to just be continually uh, improved, grown. And so we might be, if we're perfectionistic, might say, well, if I'm not going to do or I might as well not be a hearer. That's not the case. It's good that you're a hearer. Also become a doer. You'll discover um, what the hearing was talking about, right, what we were learning. Um, James says earlier in this book, you should pray for wisdom if you need wisdom. God won't scoff at you. He won't mock you for it. He'll give you wisdom. But in addition to asking for wisdom, also believe that he will give it to you, right? And so um, he's calling us in so many of these uh, different verses in this book to, you're on the right track, awesome, keep it up with the Lord's help, right? Uh, Don't give up, don't get discouraged. Um, In a cynical society, shallow faith can be dismissed as hypocrisy alone. And that's not always what it is, right? Jesus goes to war with the hypocrites of his day because they were learning all the rules of the religious system they were in to increase their status by selectively applying different rules, right? That's, that's hypocritical. That's acting. But that's not the same thing as the father who comes up to him asking for healing for his son. And when Jesus says, do you have faith? He says, I believe, help my unbelief, right? There's a massive difference between Hypocrisy, which applies different things for self-gain, egocentric, versus faith that wants to seek understanding, that wants to deepen. And so that prayer, I believe, help my unbelief, that is a beautiful prayer that we find in Scripture. Um, So I don't know if you guys have ever worked a job where you've uh, worked with somebody who was not very motivated before. You guys have heard of this? This happens sometimes. Um, Sometimes when you're a teacher, that happens, okay? I've discovered. Um, One uh, year I was working as a tutor in a really great organization 
who would take kids that were very, very discouraged in school. They may have learning disabilities, but through the process, they led them through. Their confidence would go up. They mastered the skills. It was a fantastic organization. I was very, very thankful to be a part of it. Very good. Um, after some time, I eventually ran into a young man who didn't want to be there more than the others. Okay, I mean, this guy, absolutely, I don't blame him. I didn't take it personally. I realized he doesn't enjoy the subject in the first place. He definitely doesn't want to spend extra time working on it after school. Uh, but the attitude was different in this young man, and I'm uh, taking him through these different exercises, and I think I have an hour and a half session with him, and after 10 minutes, I turn my head for a second to like get a pencil or something, and I notice that his notebook is pushed forward and closed, and I go, what's up? And he goes, I'm done, and I said, we have an hour and 20 minutes left. You're not done, right? He was like some kind of con man. He thought I might actually fall for that. I don't know. Um, but anyway, he, uh, it was like pulling teeth every single problem we were doing. And we finally got to this, this one uh, that it was something like, look at these two words, dog and dig. Tell me which, what's different about these, right? We're trying to drill on that. And he's staring through the page. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to be there. Looks through it kind of folds his arms, looks ahead, and in my head, I'm thinking, well, this is unusual. This is not normally. I usually have ideas. I'm going to leverage the power of boredom against him, all right? I can hang out longer. I'm paid to be here, right? I can stand silence probably more than he can. Well, uh, turns out he can handle it pretty well, too, right? He doesn't make a move. He stares through the page, and so I ask again, what's, you know, what are the difference between these two words? Can you show me? And again, he goes, I don't know, and I say, I'm not sure this is the, like the best move, uh, but I go, it's obvious <laughs> after waiting some amount of time. And I'm quiet for like another minute. I'm like, okay, he's definitely going to at least say something after this, right? And so after uh, uh, another minute of waiting, I, I say, so what do you think? And he goes, it's obvious. And I said, yes, I know. And I was like, but what is it? And he says, it's obvious. And I said, do you know what obvious means? And he said, no. And so all he's doing is repeating what I'm telling him, right? He was hoping that that could be an answer that passes when that's definitely not what I was looking for, right? Um, but oftentimes, um, this is where we'll often think relationship with the Lord goes, right? It's just repeating what we hear, uh, reciting memory verses without letting them go deep into us to where we get the freedom of God inside of us because they are the greatest wisdom to be on earth, right? But you don't have to stop there. There's a world of, uh, of understanding of the Lord that's very possible as we enter into obedience. And so James isn't saying, you guys, you know, you're terrible failures. He's saying, you can keep going. There is so much more to discover. You're on your way. You're hearing the word, be doers. Let it get deep deep in you for the freedom that God has always intended for us. So there's uh, this whole passage that I'm talking about today is 13 verses long. I will refer to them um, shortly, but what I've done is divided it into four sections where we answer a question, all right, through these different parts. So in this case, the first question I think that's really helpful uh, to ask is, what do we see when we see a person? If we're students of Jesus Christ, Part of what we're looking to do is see the world or interpret the world or value the world. Have his definitions, his associations of things. For money to mean whatever it would mean to Jesus. For people to mean whatever people mean to Jesus in our position. That's why we study from him. It's why we follow him. And so the situation in James chapter 2 verse 1, he says, My brothers, show no partiality 
as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And so he's, keep in mind what he's saying is, the situation he's dealing with is, it's not so much that uh, he goes on to say, don't just welcome the rich and tell the poor to go stand to the side. He's not just saying, that's kind of like schmoozing, man. <laughs> like, that's kind of ugly, right? That's classless to say the poor need to go over here and the impressive or the rich need to go over here. What, that may be true, but what he's saying is, you're taking the world's values and bringing them into the church, and we are meant to be an alternative people that live by a new value system with a new king in place. And so it's, it's okay. There's going to be times where we bring what we've learned and operate in that way. But the whole point of following Jesus is to eventually let go of the former ways that are obsolete if Jesus is king, right? And not just bring the value system that we're surrounded by in the culture or that may have motivated us through part of our life into it, right? And so what he's basically saying is, um, good, show up to church, definitely. But also keep in mind you're practicing the faith. What we talk about in CSM, the student ministry, I lead the 7th through 12th graders, we define the value of belonging as this. We practice seeing each other as if the most important thing about them is that Jesus loves them. It's not that there's not other details about their lives that make them unique. That's fine. It's not that we're trying to ignore this. It's that we begin to deal with each other most directly as souls. And this becomes actually much easier when that's really what comes to mind when we see a person. We're training to see things the way that Jesus would if he were in our position. So uh, an example of this is from the, uh, the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann. He talks about how after Israel was delivered from slavery in Egypt and they are in the promised land. They are a people of a big miracle, right? Where their great-great-grandparents were slaves in Egypt. They've heard the miracles. They've heard about the dividing of the Red Sea and all this stuff. And now they're in the promised land. And they have these laws from God that are like really aggressively neighborly, right? Like you can't, uh, like if you make a loan to somebody and they give you their, their coat for collateral, you gotta give it back to them before the end of the night. That's kind of a bummer, right? If you're trying to really accumulate wealth and that's your biggest uh, thing that you're chasing. But the reason he's saying that is because they need it. They're people. You need to give it back to them before the end of the night because they might be cold if not, right? And so, well, this is, that's very different than the culture that we're often brought up in, right? Super competitive um, and, and all that sort of thing. But he says that if you are the people of God like this and you see the land as an inheritance from God, and you are aware that you're only there because of miracles in the first place, that God brought your great-grandparents out of Egypt, and you're here. You know that your life's a miracle. You know that your freedom is, is from God himself. You look at that land, and you don't just see a commodity that's meant to produce wealth. Um, you see it as part of your inheritance that you didn't earn, right? This was given. And the people on top of that land, when you see those people, if you see the land as an inheritance, the people of God of which you are a part is also your inheritance. They are a gift as well. And when you see your inheritance uh, that will be passed on to the people of God after you and enjoyed during your lifetime, the natural reaction to what you see is to enhance it, right? Now, if the game of life in this group of people is to compete with each other and to accumulate as much as they can, well, the best use of the land is to enrich yourself, right? And everybody on top is a competitor. They're taking what could be yours if they weren't in the way. But if, you, if they look at people uh, as the image bearers of God, which the scripture teaches they are, 
And if we deal, or if they deal with each other on the basis of compassion from God, rather than just commodity, um, they, they become neighborly, right? This is what we're called to, to be neighborly to each other. Um, so there's a, an example of this non-partiality of actually dealing with each other primarily as souls, as souls first, as human beings, as image bearers of God first, that being the most relevant thing about them at any time. Uh, it was demonstrated by the guy that uh, he wrote the message version of the Bible, um, his name is Eugene Peterson. He was a pastor who did that whole project in the first place because he knew Hebrew and Greek was leading a men's Bible study, and they weren't really engaging. And so what he realized is, I need to actually translate this into the language they speak. So it's like one of the most pastoral things he could have done is to actually translate from Greek into whatever uh, cultural language they were using at the time. And so he does this. Um, he wrote a translation of the Psalms, uh, well, the whole Bible, but a few years ago, it was just the Psalms, right? And uh, there's a rock star named Bono, lead singer of U2, and he, he came across this, was, was really inspired by it. He's a musician, he appreciates, he's kind of a spiritual person, he wants to know the Lord, but doesn't quite know how, I guess. And he, he starts reading these Psalms that Eugene Peterson translates, and it really strikes him. And he also learns about Eugene and says, I think this guy might know something going on about the Lord, right? So he reaches out to Eugene. Uh, keep in mind, Bono is like world famous, very impressive guy, very wealthy guy, probably used to people wanting to hang out with him. And so Eugene, uh, when he gets the request, he says, hey, I appreciate it. It sounds like fun, but I've got this deadline that I've got to meet. I'm translating the book of Isaiah for the message and maybe some other time, but I can't right now. And so uh, now later on, um, they end up do hanging out. And when they do, uh, Eugene demonstrated this lack of partiality. I think the, the following idea from not showing partiality, and that was he protected the relationship when other people tried to use Bono through him. He's in Washington, D.C., and he'd have different people say, hey, you hang out with this rock star. Do you think you could help him? Or do you think that he could maybe comment on this issue or he could be involved in this issue or something like that? And Eugene's gentle and firm answer was no. This is a pastoral relationship. He's not going to be used for your agenda. Now, substitute the word pastoral relationship. It's a Christian relationship, right, where people are not seen as resources. Now, are we going to help each other? Of course. Do we owe each other debt, debt of love? Of course. There are ways that we're supposed to use our gifts to help each other. But there's a big difference between that, which we're called to do, and actually seeing each other as resources. And so Eugene protected that relationship. So a few years after this, Eugene is being interviewed. This writer, you know, translated the message. He's being interviewed by a guy who says, uh, he's being interviewed about his writing, and he says, is it true you turned down the chance to hang out with Bono? And he said, well, yeah, I had this deadline, you know, I was working on this. And uh, the, the interviewer said, surprised with exasperation, he says, but it's Bono. And Eugene, I think, demonstrated the perfect attitude of groundedness in what God is doing in the world. He said, Dean, it was Isaiah we're talking about, right? <laughs> and so what he's, he's not saying, who cares about that style of music? He's not saying, I don't hang out with people like that. He, was, he eventually does hang out with them, but he sees them as a human while being grounded in what God has been up to for thousands of years He's, interested, he's, he's grounded in something much higher than the cultural clout and attention he could have had in that moment, right? Um, 
before, years ago, uh, before Donald Trump was a political uh, involved person, I remember him being on the news one time and talking about how uh, he lost a lot of money in a real estate deal. And <clears throat> it was basically like a sharp decline to his wealth. And he's walking down New York City and sees a homeless man on the side of the road. And it occurred to him, he's walking by and he says, it hit me, that guy has, he's $15 million richer than I am, is what he thought. I was like, wow, that's interesting. I'm like 20 at the time or something. I'm like, wow, that's wild. You know, that changed fast. But almost immediately, I thought of the proverb that says, the rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them both. And when Jesus says in chapter, or in Mark chapter 8, verses 36, he asked this brilliant question. Um, what does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? You, I mean, that's, the point of that question is to help us examine our relationship with ambition. Like, what does it profit you to gain the world and lose your soul? Alexander the Great conquers the world and dies very shortly after. And so you might say, what was the point of that, right? Um, but if we also take a piece of information in there and apply it to this verse, what, he, what does that mean? If, if you won the world and lost your soul and that's not a good, a good deal, what does that mean? It means that right now the soul that we have is worth more than all of the world. And it means the thing that's most important about the homeless guy and Donald Trump, and whatever politician you like or don't like, and every person we, we know, the single good news about their life is we have souls. And this is the means by which we can be filled to the fullness of God. It's the way that we can know him. And so the point of this verse isn't to say, you know, this group of people is better than the other group of people. It's that we are equally uh, blessed if we can really get to know who God is and come alive. And there's no substitute for it. So I think Jeff Bezos has like 200 billion right now or something, and it's like a super yacht that like follows, behind, no, a little yacht behind the super yacht sort of thing. The reason that Bezos is a valuable human being is because of who he is to Jesus. I mean, that's it. What, the other stuff he can deal with the Lord about, who knows? But the reason the man is a valuable human being is because he's got a soul worth more than all of the world. So in this second section, um, I think a really helpful question is whose opinion do we esteem the most? Whose opinion do we esteem the most? And this is for James uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Uh, and in this verse, James chapter 2, verse 6, he says, you have You've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Now, when you read that passage, it can be easy to make a mistake here and think that what he's saying is that rich are bad and poor are good. That it's, that's not what he's saying. In this case, who he's talking about, and that's the reason I have to say that, is because not only could we misread it like that, but there's a lot of circles of the world who have had that attitude, right? And then other circles, the opposite attitude is there. The poor are bad and the rich are good, depending on where you're at, okay? And neither one are, are biblical or really sound ideas in the first place. Um, the main thing I want to say here before we're getting to the point that I think this illustrates is that Willard would say financial wealth or poverty are not inferior or superior spiritual conditions. They just don't tell you anything directly about how someone is flourishing with the Lord or not, right? And it's pretty hard to tell whether someone's flourishing with the Lord or not, or even ourselves, um, during different seasons of life. And so this simple idea of us versus them, that's not a good idea. That's not a biblical thing, and it's, um, it's not 
I think, the lens that Jesus would have in different situations. He reaches out, Jesus, to people that are in all kinds of groups that don't like him and some that do like him, and he just realizes individuals are unique. Um, another place that we may have made the mistake, that the poor are good and the rich are bad, is in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, blessed are the poor, right? That's how he starts out. And Dallas Willard says what he is saying is that the poor are not blessed because they're poor. The poor are blessed because, in this case, they are alive in the kingdom of God. And if the rich are blessed, like the poor are blessed in that context, it's because they're alive in the kingdom of God. So what he's saying is the source of blessedness or the source of goodness, the source of hope and flourishing they have isn't money or the lack of it or whatever. It is the spirit of God alive in their, in their, in their life. So being in the kingdom of God is what causes us not to be blessed, to be blessed, not the amount of stuff that we have. Um, so what Dallas Willard says in a chapter that I, it's helped me form a lot of nuanced thinking about the issue of Christians and wealth, is, uh, is poverty spiritual? That's the name of the question. Is poverty, or the name of the chapter, it's in a book called The Spirit of the Disciplines, and what he says is the opposite of greed isn't poverty. The opposite of greed is spiritual or is diligent stewardship, right? And so what he's saying is um, the amount isn't going to tell you much, right, about the person. Obviously, certain disciplines are required, giving, generosity, but that applies to people in all situations. Um, I think that what James is saying here, when he's saying you've dishonored the poor man, aren't the rich who oppress you, and drag you into court, and he goes on to say, blaspheme the name of Jesus, it's obvious in this case that he's not talking about rich Christians. They wouldn't be blaspheming the name of God and dragging Christians into court. What he's, I think what he's basically saying is that these people who have cultural power, they're not involved deeply with the church, if they are at all, um, but they, um, they, they're impressive to the world, and you've fallen for that. You have joined in being impressed with who these people are to the world, and you've kind of forgotten who you are for a minute. And you've forgotten who your brothers and sisters, who are important in this case, are too. The, the point of being a church of community is to practice uh, acknowledging what God is doing in the world and seeing people the way Jesus sees them, but you've reverted into the former patterns of valuing behavior and have chosen one group over the other. And in, in that's a mistake. This, now, this can happen sometimes. I work with teenagers, and there's a lot of insults, right? There's a lot of situations where someone's slight, and recall this from your own life. Maybe it's an insult from somebody you loved, you looked up to, a coach, a breakup with a girlfriend or boyfriend. But someone's low opinion of us may cause us to spend a lot of time trying to prove they're wrong, all right? If, you know, I'll prove them right. Or if they told me I couldn't do something, I'm going to do it. Or they thought less of me, so I'm going to prove them wrong. That's like the plot of half the Seinfeld episodes that exist, okay? I don't know if you've seen that. But, uh, but one, for example, George is breaking up with a girl in a car, and she says, are you breaking up with me? And he says, well, it's not you, it's me, you know, classic. And uh, she goes, you know, Bobby Johnson told me that I shouldn't get involved with you because you can't commit. And George is outraged. Now, keep in mind, he, was, he can't commit, and he's about to break up with her. But he doesn't like that Bobby Johnson said this about him. And he goes off, well, Bobby, blah, blah, blah. And she says, so are we breaking up? And he goes, no. And then the rest of the episode, he's trying to be as committed as he possibly can, right? And so <laughs> this, is, this is a possibility, right? There's plenty of people whose voice in the back of their head 
this insult has stuck in there. They haven't allowed the Lord's healing to take place. And it just takes up too much of their behavior and values. Um, there's the, the TV show Shark Tank. I love this one. And, uh, but one of the, the investors' name is Barbara Corcoran. And I think she's a, a real estate lady in New York, very wealthy, very, very successful. But when she talked about her, um, her life story, she talks about how um, in the first 20 jobs or something, she failed. She didn't do good in school because she was dyslexic, and they didn't recognize that back then, and everybody just called her stupid. And she's become wildly successful since then, and she says, this is what I'm trying to do with every business deal uh, that I do, is I'm trying to prove day after day that I'm not stupid. Well, she doesn't have to do that, right? If she knew who she was to Jesus, she wouldn't need to do that. And there's, there could be subconscious ways, there could be bigger ways uh, in, in our lives that maybe we're even unaware of, because we're not so good at the introspection thing. In America, there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of distraction. But ask yourself, is there someone's opinion, rather than Jesus's, that we're trying to prove wrong, right? Um, now, again, this, I'm going to repeat this. This is not saying one group is better than the other. We need to, you know, forget that group if they're not good to us um, or prize this one over the other. Um, the, again, the call is to deal with each other actually, most relevantly, as souls in need of God. That is the most important thing about the people we like and the people we don't like. And uh, there's a, I think he's the president of, Biola over in Los Angeles. He's the son of Assemblies of God pastor. And uh, he wrote a book called Love Kindness. And uh, he's, you know, really insightful guy. And uh, so in California, you know, this is a very liberal state. And he's a very conservative Christian. Not like hyper conservative, but he's a, he, he holds to traditional views that are really offensive out there. And so he's put in quite the position where he is an ideological minority. He could take a lot of flack. And so this book is basically about him navigating those waters to where he's holding to conviction, but is also really trying to, uh, to follow Jesus by showing kindness to the people that he disagrees with. And uh, he talks about how his biggest inspiration for this was his father, who was a uh, pastor in Boston. And he, he would basically say, my dad was just, he's one of the most generous people I've ever met. And he, he would talk about how uh, when a mover, uh, or when a neighbor moves in from across the street, his dad, Barry's dad, would go bring some food, and sometimes he would come home with the food still in his hand. And Barry, this is what Barry said: "I felt the sting of rejection from my fat, for my dad. He didn't seem to see it for himself. To where he'd come home with the food, and he'd say they didn't want it, and he wasn't offended. He was, he didn't like have it out for those neighbors for the rest. He didn't think less of himself because of it." He just took the opportunity to try to serve. It was declined and went on being a blessing to other people, right? The opposite of George Costanza, okay? And so, but, but Barry summarizes this attitude like this. Not being received, but being receivable. Not being received, but being receivable. We cannot determine whether we're going to be received by everybody. That would be exhausting, right? That is literally living for other people's opinion. But being receivable would be similar to what Paul talks about where he says, as far as it's up to you, be at peace with everybody. What that means is interacting in different conflicts and agreements and, and all these different things um, in ways where we're, we're acting receivable. They don't have to, but we're, we're really going to give our best effort in keeping in step with the Spirit and, and, and being at peace as far as it's up to us. 
Uh, so this third question is, what is our aim? Like, what is it we're actually really trying to accomplish? And in James chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, uh, James says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has, be countable, has become accountable for all of it. And so what he's basically saying is, like I mentioned in the beginning, the church isn't, or, you know, religious life isn't about learning the rules so that you can obey the ones you're the best at while really using the ones that others are weaker at to slam them, right? It's not a competition. This is not just a different course to raise individual status in a group. The point of the law is to set us free, right? The point of the law is really for us to discover who God is. And so he says, loving neighbor as self, that is the fulfillment of the law, right? That is actually it. Um, there is, I heard about a, a lady a few years ago who ran the Boston Marathon, okay? Very impressive. Her time was very impressive. She finished way before others did, and she didn't even look that tired. And this is amazing. Wow, she's being celebrated. And then they find out, well, it helps if you don't run the whole course like she didn't, right? She skipped a bunch of check-ins, like she skipped places she had to be, and she took a taxi. And so... <laughs> She was disqualified. Like, nobody cares if you come in first, right, if you neglect some of the parts that make the thing the actual race, right? And this is what she did. And so I think this is what James is uh, discouraging Christians from doing. Do the whole thing, not just some of it, and don't neglect the whole thing. Um, one response is just try to reject the whole thing. That's not good either, right? The royal law is fulfilled by loving neighbor herself. Uh, there's another guy uh, who is a bit more technically correct than her. Um, he's what you would call a life hacker um, who basically tries to find all the shortcuts he can to be successful. And so uh, he decides one day that he wants to be a kickboxing champion in Taiwan. But he's from, like, Iowa or something. And he's never kickboxed before. And so there are disadvantages to this. And so he, well, first thing he does is he learns all the rules. <laughs> and uh, it's something like this. Basically, if he gets kicked in the head by the other guy, the other guy gets three points. But if he can push the guy out of the ring, he gets half a point. And so he trained really, really hard for a few months to figure out the best ways of not getting kicked in the head and pushing the guy out. And that's what he did. And he won. And uh, he won the top prize. He got the prize money and the trophy or whatever. And then they banned him from the sport. They said, you can't ever do this again, right? And so <laughs> they're okay with them. people really kickboxing if you're bad, but not selectively applying the rules, right? So, and then finally, um, so again, James is calling us to fulfill the whole thing, to, uh, to actually be loving to neighbor itself, not just in the ways that are easiest to us. And here's the deal, with a growth mindset, with humility, we don't have to be afraid of the ways that we're lousy at loving with, right? That's a growth area. We're, we're accepted, right? I mean, we, can, we have the safety of admitting we got to improve with some different stuff. Um, Tim Keller says that Christian identity is the only identity that is received. It's not achieved. You don't become a Christian by living up to a certain standard. You become a Christian by trusting in Jesus and staying as close to him as you possibly can with your faith deepening and in receiving the identity that he has for you, receiving the love which increases trust, which will eventually bear fruit, right? And that's where the behavior shows up as a reinforcement and expression of the faith that he's growing in us. And then finally, uh, the last question, does our character allow us to show mercy as Christ does? In, in James chapter uh, 2, verses 12 and 13, he says this, so speak and act as those who are going to be judged under the law of liberty, 
It's a weird thing to say, right? You don't, you wouldn't normally think those things go together. But he says, for judgment is without mercy for the one who shows no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. So it's a confusing thing, the law of liberty. I had to look it up because I don't, I don't know what that would mean, right? What is, another way of saying it is the law that gives freedom. That if you stay on a, a certain, uh, if you're aiming for truly the heart intention behind the law and you fulfill it, it actually allows freedom. Today is Independence Day. Um, it is literally the celebration of being free from a different entity, right? And that is absolutely a major definition of freedom. That's an extremely important part of freedom. But Dallas Willard points out that in our culture, that's the kind of freedom that we spend most of our time thinking about, is other people not getting in my way or other people not telling me I can't do something. And this is important. It needs to be maintained. We need to be vigilant for sure. But he says there's this other freedom, and that's the freedom to, the freedom to uh, participate with God in ways that our character has not freed us to. It's just not been developed yet, right? But if we keep in step, it will. He uses this illustration for that. He says, there is no law against playing basketball, but that doesn't mean you're going to be able to dunk, right? Like, they, they haven't chained the place up. I mean, uh, there is, you will not have to pay a fine if you play basketball, but that doesn't mean you can keep up. It doesn't mean you can run. doesn't mean you can even hit the backboard. That requires a certain type of formation, and that is a type of freedom as well that we get from uh, following Jesus. Willard says, it's not, following Jesus isn't about big sacrificial acts or it being hard. Um, he says, following Jesus is about it being easier to follow Jesus. Oftentimes, we'll romanticize all the struggle and sacrifice of following Jesus, but then it gets really tempting to take pride in our suffering. This feeling of, oh, that's how I demonstrate seriousness. Jesus is... He's more concerned about us following, right, than us being sacrificial. Um, and so keeping our mind, mind there that this really actually can become quite easier when we begin to see things uh, the way Jesus does. Um, so this, this freedom to show mercy is, is a difficult topic. This is one of the most offensive things in the gospel, I think. Um, Brett McCracken's a, a writer who wrote a book called Awkward. It's fantastic. Um, it's about church, or it's not awkward, it's called Uncomfortable. And the whole point of this book is to say that it being uncomfortable to go to a church where there's people you disagree with, that's not a bug, that's a feature. Like, that's part of the point of it. Part of going to church and, and being with people, like James is talking about, the rich and poor, what, you know, it may not be the easiest thing for them to connect. Hey, what'd you do today? You know, I went on my sailboat. Oh, okay. All <laughs> right. Might be hard to connect with them. But he says, that's not a bug. That's a feature. It is important to decenter our preferences. It's, it, uh, it's important for us to center Christ by decentering our preferences. And uh, in that, he tells this story about the offense of, of grace, the offense of mercy. And he talks about this one uh, movie where uh, there's a, a lady in Korea whose son has been killed. And the movie is about her grief, like her, her kid. He's like 10 or something, and he's been killed by this guy. And the whole movie is about her trying to process this and get through it. And she's hanging out with these Christians. And she's getting nearer and nearer to the Lord, and um, they're helping her cope. And eventually she becomes a Christian and decides, I need to forgive this guy, which is true. Like that's, that is consistent with biblical teaching. And uh, they're, they're happy for her. They're encouraging her in it, and they're saying, yeah, good. And, uh, and she says, and I'm going um, to go to the prison and forgive him face to face. And they said, 
I don't know about that. I don't know if you're ready for that. Like, you just may be aiming a little further than you can go. Well, she ends up going into this prison and meeting this prisoner uh, who killed her son. And she plans on forgiving him and it being such a shock to him that who knows, maybe he converts or something or he, whatever, it changes him. She's hoping for something like that. She goes in um, and he says, hey, you know, I'm so glad you're here. I want to hear what you got to say, but just let me, I, I need to say something first. And he says, um, I've become a Christian and uh, I am deeply thankful for the mercy that God has shown me. And I am so sorry to you for what I did. And I just want you to know, I could never make it right, but I pray for you every night and I want your grieving to be lessened and I want the Lord to meet you and, uh, you know, and, and be with you through this. And you can see that she becomes deflated. And this is not what she was hoping for. And uh, she goes, it's good that you found God. And he says, yeah, I mean, like, I could, I could never make it right. I, you know, I, I'm just, I'm sorry, but I'm so thankful for the Lord's forgiveness. I hope he blesses you in every way. And she leaves the prison, and she ends up leaving the faith. She can't stand being a Christian after this. And part of it is the idea that she needs mercy as much as this guy. And the fact that God beat her to the punch, right, to forgive. She wanted the mercy to be hers to give. She wanted to maybe even kind of sting him a little bit by forgiving him. And, and so what's, what's going on here? Um, she's offended by the idea of grace. But I, and I would say this, as I said in the beginning, that's not the same thing. It's a fictional movie, all right? But in that, it, if there was a situation like that, I don't know if I would call that hypocrisy. It's not like we should dunk on this lady for, oh, yeah, she was just trying to use the faith to do this. What's going on is her, she's halfway there. And I would encourage her, keep going. Right? You're right that forgiveness is important. You may be overshooting. You're not, this isn't about you. right? This isn't about your mercy to be given. This is about God's mercy to be given to him and for you to also experience. Remain humble. Remain patient. Right? But the reason that she was so blown off by this is because the truth is, in the deepest parts of her soul, she hadn't experienced the mercy of God. And she's not to be bashed for that. It's, it's to say, you've, there's just more work to be done. There's more of Jesus to know. There's more love for you that you have not discovered yet. Stop trying to make this some sort of, you know, thing where you're the center, right, or your armor. Jesus is your protector and your salvation. Um, every now and then when it comes to showing mercy, people will use the phrase, be the bigger person, right? That's, that's totally, like, egocentric. Like, that's, that's not a good reward, and it's often not enough to really help us, um, Restore relationships, it's not enough for us to be transformed in the ways that we need to be transformed. And so, uh, in, in summary with this whole thing, um, Jesus is precious, right? And the reason that we're following him isn't to feel like a better person. Oftentimes, religion will be presented as this thing, get your life together, right? Or feel good about yourself or whatever. Okay, the, the place that those have will be found in Jesus, okay? The parts that he thinks are valuable, they will be found. But there is so much to discover as we obey, as we embody our faith more deeply by keeping in step with the Lord in these different ways um, and considering them joy, right? This is what he says in the first chapter. Consider these types of trials joy because the testing of your faith gives you perseverance and you discover the goodness of God more and more. So uh, we're going to have a time of worship. And uh, if you guys would agree with me in prayer, um, we'll set our attention uh, to join into worship. Mm -hmm.